Supercharge your health with the Doctor's Kitchen Cookbook by Dr. Rupi Audula. Packed with 100 delicious, easy recipes, plus lots of lifestyle tips and information. Available in all good bookshops. Take your first steps towards optimum health today. Welcome back to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we're going to be discussing the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. These are some of the things that I wrote about in my first book, The Doctor's Kitchen, blending together the science with delicious recipes inspired by cuisines from around the world. One of the things I get asked a lot about is the assumption that when I talk about food and medicine, I'm largely referring to obesity or cardiovascular disease, but the aim of this show is to demonstrate the intersection between nutrition and lifestyle across the breadth of medical specialties and that's why today we're talking about diet lifestyle and this specialty of urology which actually covers a lot more than just your bladder i've got one of my good friends mr nish betty a urology registrar from london he's an avid climber in fact that's actually how we bonded whilst we were in sydney we had a mutual friend who introduced us and we ended up going climbing on your on your time away yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> that was Sydney, that was amazing. And it was good, hey? Mm. Welcome to the show, mate. I'm so pleased that you could come. Let's start with probably one of the most commonest things that you deal with, stones. Yeah, okay. So kidney stones, uh, really big problem, extremely painful. Um, Very and painful, the, hey? Really, really painful. People say more painful than childbirth. Yeah. Um, so. Do men say that? <laughs> <laughs> I think probably, um, I think women are more qualified and, and they're telling us it's painful and that you got to take it seriously. Um, and it's, you know, a huge amount of operating required for, for stones as well. So it ends up being a big burden for people, for, for hospitals. So I think there's quite a few established sort of dietary things to do to, to try and reduce uh, stones forming. Um, and there's no actual medicine for most uh, stones formation to reduce most uh, stone formation. Before we talk about that, mm. could we talk a little bit about why stones form in the first place and why there might be a genetic predisposition? Because that's kind of like a, an unknown topic, right? Yes, I think it is a bit unknown. I think there's a predisposition, like you, exactly like you said, mm. and if your parents have uh, stones, then you're 20% more likely to have stones. But a lot of people just have them without that. And, th- and there's no real known cause for most common types of stones. Um, there's a few, like the weird and wonderful types, that are... You, you know, you have um, some sort of gene abnormality and then you'll, you'll form those throughout your life, maybe yes. even from childhood. So, yeah, the vast majority are potentially due to stress or dehydration is one of the sort of potential factors. But there's also an element potentially with your diet. And so there, there are broadly two types of stones? There's quite a few different types of stones. We describe them in terms of their makeup. The most common types are calcium stones. And then mm. the two types from there are, are oxalates, phosphates. Okay. So in terms of the dietary advice for oxalate stones, now about 15% of that comes from your, your diet, your oxalates in your body. Mm-hmm. So it's not all of the oxalates, but if you reduce that amount, then we usually try and advise people, particularly if they're forming oxalate stones, uh, that will be helpful. They tend to be the hardest types of stones, so they're more of a pain to remove as well. Okay, um, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it takes longer to operate on them. Uh-huh. What uh, kind of size are we talking about? So usually if they're above about half a centimetre, they start to become a problem, and that's mm-hmm. when they can get stuck and, and more difficult to pass without an operation. You know, as a rule of thumb, they can go up to filling your whole kidney as well. So yeah. you can you can grow pretty big stones. Mm-hmm. 
from half a centimeter, that's uh, five millimeters. That's when yeah. you know they start getting pain, problematic, all the rest. Or some I've actually seen smaller and very small actually, and they've still created quite a bit of pain for the patient. Right? When would you consider starting surgical intervention? Is it size dependent? Uh, there's a few factors. So size is is a big factor. Uh, but you can also look at the position of the stone, associated infections or obstruction to the kidney. If they've only got one kidney as well, mm. you're more at risk. Interestingly, pilots, if they even have a small stone, are not allowed to fly. So they have a higher sort of um, in- intervention rate. So you'll operate on more more often for pilots for small stones. Really? Mm, Why is that? Just because they're going to be up in the air? and Exactly, because if they're up in the air and the, suddenly the stone drops, then they're in real difficulty. Obviously, they're far away from uh, hospital and treatment and they're in charge of a plane. Exactly. So, yeah. so I think we're talking about food, weren't we? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. The, uh, the low oxalate diet is one thing we, uh, we were talking about. So if you do get those oxalate stones, and then people always ask me, like, you know, patients say, well, what is an oxalate? And we tend to say it's a range of things that can be affected. So tea and coffee, mm. certain nuts, rhubarb, for example, spinach. Yeah. So it's it's a tricky one to avoid it and is, what, yeah. what we tend to do is just say look are you eating maybe five bags of this type of nut every day because that, <laughs> that could be why you're getting these yeah. oxalate stones yeah. uh, rather than saying try and cut out specifically these things are there dietetics teams involved with urology teams when patients come and present with specific types of stones like oxalates uh that's a good question in general no it's interesting because in in our specialty like we're talking about these diets generally we just give people advice briefly and one of the reasons why i wanted to do this is to yeah. to look into exactly what you know how to make it easier for people to to avoid those diets and maybe a dietitian for urology would be helpful would be useful yeah mm. particularly if like you know it's in oxalates in such a broad range of different food types it might be harder for urologists as well to try and identify where in their diets they're actually getting these types of foods and um, how to replace them as well yeah exactly what you do if you're if you're cutting out all of these things exactly yeah particularly the greens because you know, mm. high in oxalates but they're very good for us. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lots good in lots of other ways. And mm. people like a lot of tea and coffee. And Is that related to the dehydration aspect as well, do you think, from the tea and coffee? I think we ask people when we say to just to be hydrated, we ask them to drink about three litres of water a day. So that's right. above the normal amount that anyone would drink. It's quite hard to do. Absolutely, um, yeah. It really is hard to do. And they need to be drinking it throughout the day. Yeah. So, so you can't just have three litres in the morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So try and stuff that down in one go. Yeah. We tend to say, like, build it into your routine, actually, so mm. that... Maybe first thing when you wake up in the morning, you have a big glass of water. Every time you have a meal, you have one before, one afterwards. Every time you go to pee, maybe you have a glass of water afterwards. Exactly. And, you know, so that way you're drinking through the day and spacing it out. Absolutely. It's one thing that I actually got into when I was a junior doctor, because as you know, you pretty much don't get a chance to stop <laughs> when you start like seven or eight in the morning, whenever your ward round is. And then I remember getting to like 2pm and thinking, wow, I have not had anything to drink and I don't feel like going for a pee either. So there's something, uh, it's a bit of a disconnect here because I'm looking at patients that haven't passed urine for like six hours and that's when we start thinking about what's going on. I think, um, Generally, people seem to be much more aware of it in hospitals now as well. You know, people are always carrying bottles of water around yeah. with them on those plastic refillable ones. And I think that's good. And I think if you're a stone former, then you're going to have to take a, you know, a large one of that with you. And it's going to be hard in certain jobs, I would have thought. But Absolutely, yeah. Have you managed to, um, with any patients of yours, uh, actually reduce the formation of the stones just through hydration and some simple measures like that? It's really hard to quantify. We know that this works, but... You, you wouldn't really be able to say one way or another, I think. We do have ways of checking on people, though, when we send them off for a test, and then you can kind of see 
if they've been doing that in 24 hours, if they have how much they're actually producing. Yeah. And then you can say, well, you're not producing what, what we know will help. What you do find is perhaps in the summertime when people are more dehydrated yes, and yeah. people aren't catching up with mm. how much they should drink, then you get more stones. Usually. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're coming into stone season. <laughs> yeah, stone season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so... That, um, that was talking about oxalates anyway. The other things that will help then was uh, low protein. Mm -hmm. Generally avoiding all kinds of protein helps with all stones. Something that you can take rather than avoiding, uh, so far we've just been talking about avoiding, but often stone formers have a low citrate in their urine. Citrate can be just found in fruit juices or even just like a few drops of lemon juice. You know, a few drops every day can essentially help stop stones binding and forming so much. That can be a useful thing to do. And something else we advise when you're having three litres of water, it probably makes it palatable to have some... Citrate. Some citrate into yeah. your foods, yeah. I mean, having those different mm. sorts of citrus fruits into your diet as well are just generally healthy for you. It's another source of uh, phytochemicals that you get. But it's quite interesting to note that citrate has been singled out as an element in the diet that can actually reduce in stone formation. It's a useful thing to sort of top up and then help reduce that stone And that formation. actually reduces the number of stones that these particular stone formers will Yeah, have. that's right, yeah. Have you had experience where you've topped up citrate in a supplemental form, I'm assuming, <clears throat> yeah. rather than just diet or, or maybe just through diet, I'm not too sure, but where, where that's actually had a significant effect on stone formation? It's difficult when someone's not forming stones to mm. actually say, because we don't see them. We we'll yes. tend to see them when, they, you know, when they're actually having a crisis, having mm. a stone stuck in the urethra or passing one and lots of pain coming as an emergency. So I, I guess that's the difficulty with studies on stones as well. Yeah, yeah you, you can't really see what's not happening but these dietary things we give are to try and prevent stone formation. But I think also you get the advantage maybe, this is a theory really, but of forming smaller stones. You know, so if you are prone to form them, maybe you'll make a smaller one or maybe it will grow less quickly. So that's maybe sort of the advantage, I think, if you, know, you make your operations or passing the stones a bit easier. So a lot of people might assume that if you take calcium out of the diet, mm. that that could help with reducing the formation of stones given that calcium is a component of the stones itself yeah that's a good one to debunk because um we know that most stones are calcium but mm -hmm. actually they found that if you try and reduce calcium in your diet you increase the chance of forming stones right. which is yeah which is a bit bizarre but it's just one of those things it's the other component of the stone that's more important that's really interesting mm -hmm. do you reckon if you reduce calcium from yeah. your diet it might upregulate your body's uh, natural uh, homeostatic mechanisms well, to increase calcium. Yes, that could probably be part of it. It's also to do with the binding. So, the, so calcium in your diet tends to sort of bind the other the other components. So, for example, oxalates, like yes. we spoke about before. Yeah. Mm. Then you're you're less likely to have it hanging around in the kidneys and forming stones. Exactly mm. right. Yeah. So calcium can have a have a protective so, effect exactly, on the yeah. oxalates. Gotcha. Mm. Urates was the other thing I was going to mention. So uric acid, um, which is similar to a high levels that can give you gout. So it's purine rich food such as uh, food with meat, fish, anchovies, crabs, herring. So lots of stuff that you're recommending in your book. And generally, <laughs> I know you're looking at me like, why are you saying don't have those? Yeah. But, well, I mean, I think the uh, the excess of of these certain foods yes. um, yeah, may be uh, something that you want, you might want to watch out for. And certainly, according to Mediterranean diet principles, things like oily fish, mackerel, anchovies, you yeah. know, we're not saying have those things every single day, we're saying like, you know, have at least two portions per week. Or you can also get similar sorts of omega-3s from different plant-based sources as well, like chia and walnut and uh, algae, flaxseed, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's really interesting to note that these are high impurities that can lead to certain types of... Yeah, gout used to be seen as a disease of excess didn't it as well so, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you have obese people with you know a really high red meat red wine sort of intake and that's what or beer intake as well and you know people with 
and know that was the likelihood of forming gout. And even traditional medicine, people would associate that and then to try and to cut those things out. Yes. Um, but for for us, in terms of stones, we know that sort of uric acid stones and reducing those levels will will help. So that's pretty much everything in terms of our stone diet tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's super interesting mm. because essentially what you're, what you're heightening people's awareness of are things that can potentially exacerbate stone formation yeah. from a variety of different sources and things that you can introduce into your diet as well, like citrate is probably the main thing and hydration as well. Those are the two key things. Yeah. But ultimately, when you have a nutrient-dense diet, you've got all the different sort of collection of phytochemicals that you get from vegetables uh, of different colours as well as judicious use of uh, meat products so reducing your meat content that yes. can actually have quite a, a positive impact on, on stone formation yeah since i've been in urology and started working in hospitals we i've in when i've been in clinics i've heard consultants giving these talks to patients and saying look this is the diet you need to follow yeah. it's in our british guidelines for surgical guidelines you know there's information leaflets we give out to patients as well so I think it's interesting now that, you know, to combine that, that people are so much more food aware, but actually that's been happening for, oh, a while. for stone performers for a while. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think it's, it's, it's good that we, you know, heightening people's awareness of these particular yeah. certain diets. Um, as I get asked a lot actually about lots of different ways in which people can utilize diet in certain ways. And yeah. my general advice is to look at the whole bodily system rather than, you know, doing things to, to essentially try and treat one aspect of the body. But this is quite interesting in that there are certain, there's advice specifically tailored towards stones. It's, it's, I think people sometimes they find it maybe a bit strange patients when they, they're coming to a clinic and they're, you know, they're in a medical clinic, they want medicine. Yes. But it, in, when it comes to stones, there's generally no medicine that we give them to prevent stone formation. And we try and just tailor a diet to them. And we do have that sort of personalized aspect. So that was the general type two tips I've given you. But if we collect a stone, so if we usually if we operate on them and then we take a fragment of the stone, we can send that for analysis. And then if we find out that they've got a uric acid stone or an oxalate stone or a certain type, then we tailor the diet even more. We say, look, you're forming this type of stone, so your diet needs are specifically this. Brilliant. So, you know, stop eating 10 bags of macadamia <laughs> nuts a day or whatever it might be. <laughs> See, the episode is called If You're Bladder. And this is one of the most commonest things that you see in clinic, right? Lower urinary tract symptoms. Yeah, that's right. And what, what do we actually so, mean by that? Low urinary tract symptoms are, it's, it's basically a group of different types of uh, issues that people have with their bladder. And that can be defined by lots of different terms uh, for men and women. And it can be like they're not happy with how much frequency they have or urgency, for example, or that they're not happy with the flow. Urgency um, is that, that sensation of needing to go? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That sort of desperate, for a wee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. sensation you need to go yeah. for a wee, yeah. having to run. We see people uh, who've tried medicine for that usually and are still having problems and then they come to hospital and yeah. they you know, see our specialist advice. At that point, you assume that usually they've done everything they can in terms of lifestyle measures. Yes. But actually people aren't very good at reviewing that from a bladder point of view. Mm -hmm. So rarely, but occasionally we'll find people who are doing things that they could really change within their diet and lifestyle. Usually they'll be done by really good GPs before they get to us. Um, really good GPs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like yourself. Then, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like on the most basic level, uh, avoiding caffeine. Mm -hmm. So um, caffeine is an irritant for your bladder. And occasionally you see someone in a clinic who's drinking like 10 cups of coffee a day. Or the other one that's interesting is green tea. 
because mm. people don't realise that that has a lot of caffeine in there yeah, as well. Yeah. And because they know that it's so good for you, people sometimes are just drinking that as their only fluid exactly. and then wondering why they're so irritated in the bladder the whole time. So that's uh, the first thing we'll sort of look at and try and advise against. Along with that and other lifestyle sort of measures like pelvic floor exercises, bladder training, you can actually get about 50% people uh, improving just from doing the exercises, avoiding caffeine. Maybe can you describe some of the exercises levels. for the listeners? Um, if you're if you're having a wee, try and stop yourself yeah. midstream. So that's a good way of making sure you're isolating the right muscles. And then if you know that you're using those muscles to stop, then, the, stream. To stop yeah. the stream, then you can try and bear up um, and sort of pull them up separately to when you're having a wee. And you should be doing that you know, during the day, maybe if you can fit it in 10 times a day or something. We say like 10 bursts, or short, short and fast, sort of contractions of that muscle. This is a question I get asked, actually. Are there any benefits of doing these particular pelvic floor exercises generally, even if you do not have bladder symptoms? I think probably it is in terms of training any muscle. I think it'll be useful. And interestingly, from our point of view, we try and get all our patients to do it. Uh, you know, and even if it doesn't work, it gives you better results if you do operate on them. But, but what's interesting is that you can just fix your problems with, with just doing, you know, fix your bladder problems with those simple measures. You know? Exactly, yeah, we're doing these simple exercises. And I think a lot of people, uh, I've certainly had experiences with patients in the past where they're resistant to doing these exercises because they think it's quite futile. Yeah, but yeah exactly. You have to get them to buy in and that's the, the difficulty with it. You know, that's, yeah. that's probably why it fails because it requires that commitment from... Yeah, exactly. It's that yeah. behaviour change that you want to try and uh, and, and get over. And, mm. you know, as you're saying, 50% of people that do these simple lifestyle mm. measures can actually have improvement. I mean, that's 50% mm. of people that don't need to be on these medications, many of which have side effects. Yes, exactly. Particularly with the bladder, I think, and, you know, there's so much of it is psychological and so much to do with what you're, what the fluids you're having and, and the muscles around there that you, you could just improve yourself. Yeah, and the timing of fluids as well, right? Yeah, and the timing of fluids, I think, as well. You know, not drinking in the evenings, for example, if you're getting up a lot overnight. It seems very simple and obvious, but you sometimes find people, uh, some, you know, maybe just have a beer just before they go to bed or yeah. something or a big cup of tea and, yeah. and then they wonder why they get up overnight. And, you know, it's it seems a bit patronising to say the obvious stuff sometimes, yeah. but that, you know, can just be someone reviewing your lifestyle with you. And, yeah. you know, and then helping yeah. um, without just giving medicine always. Yeah, Totally. And so these sorts of lifestyle measures you do before entertaining even supplements and stuff like that, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, generally, we try and do as much as we can possibly with this first. Mm. Um, and what I try and say, and I heard one of my consultants, you know, phrase it like this once, and I've, I've used it quite a few times, is that we could try doing everything together to make your bladder perfect. You know, maybe this has taken... A while to happen but if we do everything including lifestyle measures and dietary things as well as maybe we'll give you a tablet for six months and then see where we are and then maybe you can, at that point you can think about stopping the tablet and then going back to having coffee occasionally and, and so on and finding out what works for you almost like giving your body a reset to exactly. essentially yeah. sensitize itself back to a normal medium yeah and i think also giving it that, that that six month window means that you're not committing someone to a lifetime of the tablets to fix the problem which is you know i'd rather i think people generally would rather let not be sort of committed or exactly. dependent on tablets yeah because uh, i see plenty of unfortunately uh, the older generation being on these sorts of tablets for yes, long yeah. periods of time they have so many different side effects first of all but also interactions with other medications as well that can be quite severe so mm. it's really important to get them to buy into all the different lifestyle measures something i've seen quite regularly actually in my clinic is um uh, patients coming in with recurrent urinary tract infections and they're on yes. antibiotic after antibiotic uh, and unfortunately for 
what we know about antibiotics as well and its effect on the gut microbiome and how that can have detrimental effects on far-ranging different aspects of mm. uh, our health, let alone microbial resistance, is something that we are being much more reserved about prescribing. However, with these sorts of patients, it can be very problematic, right? What you said is, a, is a the biggest point, I think, and the biggest problem at the moment in the hospitals is antibiotic resistance. And we're seeing more and more people just have resistance to the, the first lines, even second line antibiotics. And then, you know, you're running into more you know, difficulty in just treating simple infections. Recurrent utilizers is an interesting one because any sort of alternatives will really help. So any non-antibiotic treatment and as much as you can do with supplements or lifestyle and things, I think are, is what people are looking at now. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done some research by going to a few sort of like uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, supplement yeah. uh, uh, shops and yeah. stuff like that. And so, so what are your yeah? What, what are your uh, takeaways from that? <laughs> yeah. So to like said so to prepare for doing this today, um, I thought I'd speak to other urologists, so my consultants and registrars, and make sure that I was saying what the general consensus is and what other people say in clinic and so yeah, on. Yeah, and what it's evidence-based. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and um, I also went to a health food shop and uh, asked them for all their urology medications or supplements uh, that they had. They and, must have given you a hard sell yeah. as well, <laughs> not they knowing that you're a urology. Yeah, they, they, they did. And they had to go and call someone from the back room to first of all to be like, I'm not quite sure what he's asking for. This guy's <laughs> got a difficult customer. Yeah. Um, but so I looked at it and it was interesting because there was a couple of different supplements for each type of thing that we're used to suggesting. So like one example, we suggest certain types of cranberry capsules or I have in the past and in the shop they had two or three available. So then it's interesting to see the, the variety there. Yeah. So I, I basically got a quote here from the European guidelines, not to make it too heavy, but yeah, I just yeah. thought <laughs> I'd, I'd say this because I think it's relevant to, yeah. to what we were talking about. So... Basically, the extracts of the same plant produced by different companies do not necessarily have the same biological or clinical effects. Therefore, the effects of one brand cannot be extrapolated to others. In addition, batches from the same producer may contain different concentrations of active ingredients. So that says a lot, doesn't it? That basically says you can't trust one brand from another yeah. and you can't trust one brand <laughs> exactly so <laughs> even if it was the brand that was in question or has had some mm. clinical studies looking at it yeah exactly like you said so even if you're taking a supplement from one brand it, then because it's a plant-based extract it may not be uh, as good as the next brand and may not be even consistent so i thought that was interesting and that shows why it's so difficult to do research on the supplements because you can't be sure what you're testing from time to time and therefore we don't know exactly how good some of these things could be or whether they do anything at all. It's almost like, you know, getting back to the root cause of why these patients are having UTIs in the first place, which can be very varied from one patient to the next. You know, somebody could have uh, sugar regulation issues. They might be diabetic. Some people might have hygiene issues. They're wiping the wrong way, for example. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there are some simple reasons as to why there might be differences as yeah. well as some more complex ones as well that really uh, pertain to the ecosystem of that patient's bodily environment. That's right. And we see maybe two different sort of types of infections as well as uh, maybe the recurrent types, the same bacteria organism yes. again and again and again or people who get sometimes different types of bacterial infections. Most commonly, the organism is going to be E. coli because of you know, being close to that source, <laughs> that, yeah. that infection. The only thing that I'd say is really especially beneficial is um, D-mannose. So D-mannose is the sugar 
that has antibacterial properties within cranberries. Um, and there is evidence that cherries are basically having uh, supplements of that. So that's actually one gram twice a day, right. that sort of dose, can reduce infections. And it's not an antibacterial, so it doesn't actually kill the bacteria, but it stops E. coli particularly binding to the bladder wall. It makes it sort of puts a lining between the bacteria and the and on and on the bladder wall as well. That's really interesting, actually, because mm. there are some sort of gut-focused treatments as well that prevent recolonization of certain bacteria types in the intestines as well, right. using a sim similar sort of mechanism to what sounds like D-manos mm. that I haven't actually come across before. That sounds really interesting. I, I think it's one of those um, things where, you, you know, people will, will come to you and, or, you know, women, will, patients will say, um, oh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm drinking a couple of litres of cranberry juice a day or something. Yeah. <laughs> And you have to say, well, that's definitely not going to be helpful because no, to get the sort of the actual active component, you're not really doing the right thing. Um, so the only amount of cranberry juice that's recommended in, in our leaflets is about 400 mils, so it's yeah. maybe a glass. But actually, it's probably better if you're having the D-manos uh, itself, which is the, the active component. Yeah, and the So I think that's useful for people to know. And there's some trials looking at D-manos as well, are there? Yeah, so that's there's a trial um, which is... You know, uh, published and it's, in that, it's also mentioned in the European guidelines again, which is kind of our gold standard for the treatment, really. And it's shown actually there that using that regime, uh, they had almost equivalent results to using an antibiotic as well. Wow. So that's, that's quite brilliant. interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. The yeah. fact that you can, um, well, at least in this very small scale trial, I'm assuming, yeah. you can get away without using an antimicrobial, which can have negative side effects compared exactly. to DMANOS. Yeah. And then, you know, you avoid that resistance problem as well. Awesome. Probiotics, that's something I get asked about a lot, right? So yes. probiotic yogurts and Actimel and all the other brands. Exactly. So we, we, most consultants, I think, would advise lactobacillus. Mm -hmm. There's no convincing benefit from that in, in terms of a meta-analysis, but there is sort of weak evidence to say it helps. And I think, you know, there's absolutely no side effects to really to having that. So again, with all of these things that we're talking about the fact is that you know you may get a small benefit but you're not really going to get too much harm i think the forefront of all of our minds is first do no harm and yeah. you know if you're going to be introducing probiotic foods and prebiotic fibers to encourage a good microbiome you know we're going to be having positive side effects instead of negative uh, within reason so you know having all these different <coughs> things and potentially even trialing um, some uh, different sorts of probiotic species may be of benefit and it's worth a shot that's what I like to say to patients for sure again on the same topic of doing doing no harm you're yeah. not going to do any harm by reducing the amount of added sugars in your diet and if you're actually concentrating on a nutrient dense diet that has got lots of different prebiotic fibers as well as perhaps probiotics that you can find in the form of sauerkraut and kimchi and different sorts of uh, yogurts and kefirs and that kind of stuff mm. you may be putting your body in the best environment where it can actually look after itself and prevent these recurrent UTIs it's worth a shot again yes. it's worth a shot there isn't unfortunately there isn't that large-scale nutritional evidence to suggest that this is something we should be giving to all our patients but in the grander scheme of things it's definitely going to be uh, something that is going to be positive for you if not yeah. You know. But there are, I mean, there definitely are trials showing that, for example, what we're talking about obesity and, and controlling your sugars and, you know, better diabetic control. There are trials to show that that helps almost all of your health. Yes, um, exactly. Not just recurrent UTIs, but all of the stuff we've been talking about, even stone formation. Obviously, the most obvious ones are cardiovascular uh, disease. But it's interesting that, you know, just losing weight, controlling your sugars can help 
almost everything, every medical problem. Absolutely. And anecdotally, you know, from having patients, I mean, we see a lot of patients in GP with recurrent UTIs, unfortunately, just by changing the diet, improving their HbA1Cs, uh, the marker of their glucose over the last couple of months, yeah. uh, improving their, their general well-being markers, that's waist to hip ratio, you know, you can have massive effects. And I've mm. actually had some patients that have reduced the number of UTIs they have per year really? by just changing yeah. their lifestyle as yeah. well, and the way they approach their uh, their health. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's what some of the evidence shows. So that's, that's interesting. That's good. Yeah, a nice success story there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pat on the back. One of the most controversial areas, I think, is bladder pain syndrome. This is a yes. very complicated <clears throat> issue mm. that you, I'm sure you have, I mean, you have clinics dedicated to this, right? Yeah. So um, I worked in a, in a hospital where they had a very high incidence of interstitial cystitis, which is sort of the older term maybe for bladder pain syndrome. Uh, I ended up reading a lot and into the guidelines and there's a lot of research about it and there's a huge spectrum. And essentially we're looking at people who have pain in the bladder and it's like a chronic pain problem, so ongoing pain, without an infection, without an obvious cause, so there's not a stone again or, or tumour or anything else like that in the bladder that's causing it. And so they're really hard to treat because it's, it's a situation where the, you know we can't find a cause but someone's telling you you're in pain and uh, other than giving better painkillers, there's there's limited options we do have some surgery that we try and do and again it's just a, it's a very difficult area so before we get there we try and do and as much as possible to empower people and there is essentially a diet again that we advise and that's why i wanted to mention but yeah. this I, i'll be honest is has not got the strongest evidence because there's mm. such a variety between patients and so many different factors that could be happening here yes but I think it's interesting to to put it out there and it's available on, on websites as well. Again, on the our sort of guidelines, the British Surgical Guidelines for Urology or, and the uh, European Guidelines. And the main things which may irritate the bladder is uh, acidic, spicy foods and fruit juices, for example, are sort of acidic foods. And interestingly, like cranberry juice, if you're having that uh, cranberry juice for your UTIs, that, you know, that's one thing. But actually, if you have bladder pain syndrome, it may be causing pain right, and problems. Okay. Um, Could that be related to the sugar content at all, these fruit juices, as well as the I, fact that... I, I think it's more the acidic side of things as as far as I've, I have it documented, but I don't think, you know, excessive sugar obviously is not going to help either. Exactly, yeah. From yeah, an inflammation yeah. point of view, and you think about like the biological processes of why yeah. people experience more pain as well. So the only advice really that um, we can have away from painkillers for these patients is to try to do what they can with their diet, which means in bladder pain syndrome, trying to avoid spicy foods, acidic foods as well. And interestingly, that can include uh, cranberry juice. So although that might be good for urine infections, the acidity in that may be uh, detrimental for bladder pain syndrome sufferers. That was a fascinating conversation I had with a good friend of mine, Mr. Nish Bedi. He is a source of immense knowledge and I hope that you found some really good tidbits of information there that you can look up and uh, try and apply to anyone that you feel that might need this information as well. Please share it along with them and you can find Mr. Nish Bedi at Nish Bedi on Twitter as well and he posts lots of different articles and really interesting information about the specialty of urology. So just to sum up what we were talking about with regards regard to stone formation, hydration is probably one of the most important things that we can do. And in stone formers, again, with the advice of your urologist or your general practitioner, you should be drinking anywhere between 
two and three liters per day, ideally three liters. That's quite a lot and I think it also depends on the other medications and the other medical problems that you may have as well. Having citrate in your diet, either from uh, citrus sources or potentially a citrate supplement might be something that your urologist also talks to you about too. Removing certain oxalate ingredients from your diet may be something based on the base of whether you have stones or not and the kind of stones you have might be something that you want to look at and oxalate unfortunately comes in lots of different formats things like dark green leafy vegetables like spinach and things like rhubarb as well tea coffee certain types of nuts can also have oxalates and this is something that you might want to consider removing or at least reducing in your diet again with the advice of your practitioner urates in particular pure enriched foods all different types of red meat fish, anchovies, herring, mackerel, sardines. Despite their health benefits, if you have an issue with stone formation, these are things that you might want to consider taking out of your diet. We also talked about bladder issues, and this can include things like urgency, the sensation of wanting to go to the toilet, or bladder irritation as well. And lots of different things can cause these. It can be something as simple as taking or reducing the amount of caffeine in your diet. Alcohol is also something that can irritate the bladder as well as introducing pelvic floor exercises that your GP or your physiotherapist can also introduce you to as well. In some cases, these can lead to massive improvements in the symptoms. So it's certainly something worth doing before we entertain the need for taking pharmaceuticals. Recurrent urinary tract infections is a big problem. Having lots of different antibiotics can be very problematic, so we try and reduce their use if possible. There are a number of different ways in which you can improve your body's ability to deal with these infections as well as preventing them in the first place, but it really comes down to that individual. It could be a sugar problem, it could be certain elements in the diet, it could be related to stress as well. And rather than just giving you blanket advice about a certain diet for UTIs, I would highly encourage you to work with your practitioner being a registered nutritionist or even your general practitioner to try and identify if there are any elements in your lifestyle that can improve or reduce the number of infections that you have. Bladder pain syndrome again is another complicated topic. There are some things in the diet that can exacerbate bladder pain syndrome, spicy food, acidic food, particular juices, maybe even sugar as well, but it is quite a complicated subject. And again, it's something that I think working with a practitioner would be best. If I was to choose one dish from my cookbook, The Doctor's Kitchen, that sums up what we were talking about today, it would be the fresh kimchi noodles and shredded cabbage. It's got probiotics there, it's got loads of different colors, and it tastes delicious. Make sure you check out Mr. Neshbedi on Twitter and I'll catch you next time.